You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. When we finished the last series called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, I was really pleasantly surprised by the level of engagement that we had by our families, our moms and dads, our parents. So with that in mind, going into this series, I pulled together the, uh, the children's team, the children's ministry team, and uh, I actually asked them if they would lead us through the book of John. Uh, talk to us about what you think would be the kids' favorite stories as you go through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way through chapter 21. And so we sat there for probably an hour or so and just marked each one of the stories that would affect our kids because we know that they will affect us as well. And so I say all that to say that our kids are leading us. <laughs> our kids are leading us, and we're going to follow their lead uh, for the 21 chapters that we're going to study in the book of John. And I'm excited about doing this together. So today we cross over from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we see who the Old Testament was pointing us to. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that the law was our guardian until Jesus came, that the law kept us until Jesus came. And here's what, uh, what I love, something that Lee Strobel said uh, about the prophetic word of God, because when we talked about the Old Testament, when we talked about God's prophetic word pointing us to Jesus Christ, Lee Strobel, many of you might be familiar with the name, a former atheist, um, wrote this. He said, imagine these prophetic words coming true. He said, imagine the entire world being covered with white tile that was one and a half inches square. Every bit of dry land on this planet with the bottom uh, of just one of the tiles painted red. Do you, do you get that picture? And then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for their whole lifetime around the seven continents that he would be permitted to bend down only one time and pick up a piece of tile. What are the odds that it would be the one tile whose reverse side was painted red? The odds would be the same as just eight of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in any one person throughout history. Jesus had over 400 Old Testament prophetic words spoken about his arrival and what he would do when he would come as a Messiah. And the reason we're looking at the Gospel of John this morning is because John refers back to the Old Testament probably more than any other Gospel writer. That what we see in the book of John is he explicitly refers to the Old Testament, but he also implies the Old Testament as he writes in the way that only he can write. And that's why I love the book of John. The book of John leaves us with a little mystery. Uh, John would have probably been seen as a, a mystic in a good way because he believed in the mystery of God and God's love and how awe-inspiring Jesus was in his own life. And so John is the one, I think, capable of talking to us about Jesus Christ. Because John does something that's, I think, pretty amazing. John paints this beautiful portrait of who Jesus is. When we talk about connecting the old with the new, God, God had one primary purpose for that to happen. The old and in the old, King Solomon dedicated the temple. And the temple was a, a symbol of God's presence on earth. I don't know if you remember when we studied the building of the temple back several months ago when we were going through the Old Testament. 
What was interesting to me, and I hadn't seen it before uh, when I was reading through this passage in 2 Chronicle chapter 7, what was interesting to me is what Solomon did and what he said when he dedicated the temple to God. And he asked a question. He said, but will God really dwell on earth? That was the question. You see, every hope of every Jew in the Old Testament was that God would come, that there would be a Messiah, a Savior. And so Solomon is asking that question. He's pointing us to Jesus Christ. The answer is yes, the Messiah would come. The purpose of God was to dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's always been the purpose of God in the Old Testament. So John says, he says it so well. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what that means? Literally, it says, and he tabernacled among us. See, there's the implied Old Testament connection. He uses the word tabernacle, that he tabernacled among us, referring to the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It's amazing. Paul tells us the same thing when he says what he says in Philippians chapter 2. It's one of my most favorite chapters in all the Bible. He says, he, Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I love that passage. When you take that word servant, there are actually two meanings to it. You can use it in a few different ways. There's one way that's, uh, that's, that's defined in a radical way of what it means to serve. Uh, and there, there's another way that, that it's defined in more of a common way. So guess which one Jesus came to us in. Guess the kind of servitude Jesus provided. He offered us the most radical of the two ways that you could present a servant. The most radical is the word, the Greek word doulos. We have the word today, doulas, that help their midwives, that help children, moms, and babies during the time of birth. But this is a radical form of serving. What it literally means is that you're giving up you're giving up your will, your passion, to serve someone else. See, what did Jesus do? He says, I do nothing here on the earth that I haven't seen my father do, that I haven't heard my father say. And so when you think about Jesus serving us, then what we need to know is it's a radical servitude. It's a radical way of serving us. It's the doulos way of serving God and serving his people. The narrative of God becoming a servant, doulos, is so mind-blowing that, that it takes four authors, four, four disciples to tell the story. When you look at the Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you have to ask yourself the question, why four Gospel authors? Why not just one big Gospel story contributed by other writers, but just one big story? See, the person of Jesus is so unique, not one author can capture the Lord's magnificence. Not one author can capture the glory of Jesus Christ. So it takes two or it takes four to talk about one. And so you see that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See, before I, um, before I met Annette, um, uh, when I was in school, uh, I was a C minus student at best. And before I met Annette, can you believe this? I never had a salad before I met Annette. I, <laughs> Don't know what was going on there, but uh, before I met Annette, I, I, was, I was not one who appreciated the arts. And then after I met Annette, I got involved with eating salads and going to, to art shows. That's pretty much what I did. Um, but I, I didn't realize how much I would enjoy all of that, how much I'd enjoy the history. Uh, many of you know that in my own family, we have a prodigy. 
uh, an artist. My second child is, uh, is one of those artists. And uh, we watched him grow up, so we learned a little bit about how an artist thinks, how they live life. And uh, it's pretty wild. But when you, when you get involved with the arts, um, and especially when you're talking about music, and when you're talking about stage performance, uh, one of the places that Annette and I went before we had kids is we went to, to, to see the Pirates of Penzance in the Drury Lane Theater, which is one of the oldest theaters on the planet. It's in downtown London. Uh, I didn't know how much I would get into it, but kind of like a guy, I don't know, I don't want to stereotype maybe, but walking in, I'm thinking, oh, here we go. You know, I'm going to take a nap for three or four hours, you know. Um, but I was so impressed. I was impressed with how the artisans work together. I, I was impressed with their, the, the, their unison, their, their harmony, their, their concert. I was impressed with the way all that had to be made and pulled off, especially by the one directing. I, I just went away uh, dumbfounded. I said, this is amazing. I've been missing this my whole life. I, I love this kind of thing to see how it works. And that's typically the way my mind will work is how do teams work? What do they do uh, to accomplish one goal, but they do it? They do it together. And so when you look at the Gospels, the four Gospels, that's exactly what you see. You see the Holy Spirit is the director, and he put all of this together so that the outcome would be an awesome score, a beautiful picture, a beautiful narrative, a story to see and to hear. But it takes four of them working together. And so if you can think of the Gospel writers working together to give their view of Jesus Christ, but they're saying the same thing. He's our redeemer. He came, he lived a life that was perfect. He died and he rose again. He's coming back again. He's done all of this to bring everlasting life. Four gospel writers say the same thing. That in itself is quite a miracle because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John each have a different perspective. So I love the Gospel of John's perspective. I, I love the other three, but the Gospel of John is just dear to my heart. And I think there are a few reasons for that. Uh, you see, Matthew was written for the Jewish people. Mark was written for a Roman audience. Luke was written to a Greek audience. And you can see the flavor of each one of those. Matthew spends a lot of time in genealogy, which the Jewish uh, lineage and customs would lean towards genealogy. Where did you come from? Who's your mother? Who's your father? Uh, the book of Mark, written to the Romans, makes all the sense in the world. It's about getting it done. 16 chapters with the word immediately being repeated over and over and over again. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately Jesus did that. And then you get to Luke, and Luke discusses and talks to a, um, really to a Greek audience. Because he has his own view of how to communicate the gospel to a, to a Greek audience. Uh, audience and, and who would be listening. And it seems like John was intended to reach the whole world. John is at everybody's gospel. Now, here's something else that you might uh, want to note if you're taking notes. Remember this, that Matthew records what Jesus said. Mark records what Jesus did. Luke records what Jesus felt. John records who Jesus was. And so when you put those together, you see this beautiful four-dimension uh, narrative story picture of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so John gives us the beautiful portrait of Jesus Christ. It's a masterpiece. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says this, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. If there's a verse that captures the essence of John and the communication of John and how he wants us to see Jesus, it would be John 1.14. But you can take that and use that as a capstone. So if you're, you're studying the, the book of John, just know that this one, John 1.14 really gives us the theme. Uh, this is a portrait to be studied, uh, like a, a masterpiece. It's like seeing a beautiful portrait. We talked about a concert or a play, uh, but we can also talk about something that's put down on canvas, and, and, and that it's beautiful, and you really can't take your eyes off of it. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I have, where I've just been enthralled by looking at one painting for, oh, maybe 30 or 40 minutes, just seeing all the details. And then there's other paintings that you're just allowed to walk by, like the Mona Lisa. You just give a nod and you're on your way. Um, There are times that I just want to sit and look and watch and pay attention to the details. I think John gives us that opportunity. He's going to give you that opportunity in the days and the weeks ahead. When you study the Gospel of John, you're going to be looking at a masterpiece. So when you study it, take time. Put some time aside. And look at the masterpiece that John has put together, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because John himself was, was unique. He authored several New Testament books and was, he was a bit more, again, on the mystic side of things. Uh, known as John the Beloved. Uh, referred to himself as the one Jesus loved. So when you read the Gospel of John, you'll never hear him declare. You'll never see him write or declare that he is John the apostle or John, the disciple of Jesus Christ. Whenever he refers to himself, he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. I think that's a really good description. I think that's a good description of all of you. That you can take that moniker as well. And that you can be proud of that in a, in, in a, in a good way, in a spiritual way. Being able to say, yeah, I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I'm the one that he loved. John understood that. Somehow he understood that early on. And so John describes himself as the one that Jesus loves. And John wrote uh, John 1, 2, and 3, and then the book of Revelation. Therein lies the mysticism of uh, the gospel writer John, because he, he, he writes the book of Revelation as well. He was entrusted with writing something that was going to take place thousands of years later. John is the longest surviving of all the disciples. He lived probably to his mid-90s, which is remarkable even today. Uh, But he lived that long back then because God had him telling stories. God had him uh, painting beautiful word pictures. And that's what John does so well. And so if you like that, you dive into it. He was part of the inner circle of Jesus Christ. It's James. We have uh, Peter, James, and John. Wherever Jesus went for those personal interactive moments, he would call his three closest disciples to follow to follow him. Now, Jesus loved all of them the same, but he brought three of them along. And you'll notice some of those marvelous moments that Jesus experienced, like the Mount of Transfiguration. You have Peter, James, and John. James and John, sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder. So you have to remember that about their personalities, especially when they're in probably their early 20s when they followed Jesus. But can you imagine all the ideas they had? Can you imagine all the ideas they had for Jesus, all the expectations that they put on Jesus? 
And we see some of those expectations verbalized. We see that in the Gospel of John when he writes about it. But imagine this, in the three and a half years that he, he followed Jesus, it radically changed his life. And I think that's the big story to be told. I think there's a lot of theology to know here. There's a, a lot of eschatology to know here. There's a lot of hermeneutics to know here, all those big words you learn in Bible college. But I think the greatest thing to know here is how close John really was to Jesus. And that was the desire of his heart. The desire was for him to get close to Jesus. And that, that I hope and I pray is our desire as well. That we would have ignited in us, and I've said this before, you would have ignited in you going through the Gospel of John a passionate curiosity for everything God and everything that God has written that you would say, I want to know, Lord. Help me know. Help me understand the things that you've put down in writing. Help me be inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so to me, again, what is outstanding about his life isn't that he lived to be in his 90s. It's that Jesus changed him. Again, in his youth, he was called one of the sons of thunder. He was angry at times, impetuous, temperamental. He lacked patience. He was changed from the son of thunder to the son of tender. That's what happened. You see, that's the miracle working power of God's Holy Spirit in all of our lives. The names that we were given before we were saved are not the same names we carry today. The names that I was given before I found Jesus and he found me are not the names that I live by today. And that's the freedom you all have in Jesus Christ. That the shame of the past can be put behind you and the hope of the future in Jesus put in front of you. And that's how we live. We live with that. So the old name for John was the son of thunder. The new name for John is the son of tender. Jesus changed his life and Jesus changes our lives as well. Remember, you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and you are the one that Jesus loves. I think about where John was uh, during those last few days in the life of Jesus, where he showed up after Jesus had, had gone to the grave. John was one of the last to leave the cross, and he was one of the first to arrive at the tomb. He had something in him that I want in me. I want that drive, that passion that Holy Spirit curiosity to get to know and love Jesus Christ. That in all things, Jesus, he's faithful. Whether it's with your health or your provision or whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever it is you, you face, John knew that Jesus would come through. Out of all the disciples that followed Jesus, um, John wasn't even close to and never hinted at denying Christ. Not that Jesus didn't love the others, like Peter and, of course, we remember Judas, but, but John never got close to that line, ever got close to that line. He knew. Because it says when he went to the tomb, he remembered and he believed. Immediately he remembered and he believed. That is the way that John is presented to us. That's how we see him. So I want you to look at with me, if you would, John 1.1. When John 1, 1 reads like this, and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar to you, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Sounds like something from Genesis 1, 1, doesn't it? So here again, you hearken back to the Old Testament. John does that so well. Notice what John does here again. 
Matthew, in his writing, goes back to Abraham. Luke actually goes back to, to Adam. But John, no, nah, John goes all the way back to the very beginning. The very beginning, in the beginning. Again, it sounds like the Old Testament that we're being pointed here, that, that we need to know something about Jesus. John wants us to know this in the worst way. He wants you to know that Jesus never wasn't, and Jesus always was. He wants you to know that. He's saying whatever else you go through in life, whatever you're facing, whatever religion you encounter, he wants you to remember that Jesus is eternal. He's saying that to us right here. He's saying something so profound, and the way that he says it, Jesus never wasn't, Jesus always was. In the beginning was the Word. Now, he's referring to Jesus as the Word here. And here's why this title works, because the Jews would refer to God as the Word. And if you've studied Jewish history, you understand why, because the real name of God was so sacred, you would never utter it. It would never come out of your lips. Uh, so you had to come up with holy nicknames, is what you had to come up with. Uh, nicknames that were appropriate, and the Word was one of those. In the Greek, it's the word, and you'll see it in your Bible, is the word logos, the word. In Hebrew, it's mirma, that's the word. And so both the Greek community and culture and the Jewish community and culture called Jesus the word. Like John gave Jesus that wonderful name, a, the real name of God, again, could not be uttered. So the Jews had these nicknames like Adonai. That was a nickname, a holy nickname. Mirma is the word. Nicknames, in a lot of ways, communicate quality of, 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 the, of another. It, it communicates something, uh, sometimes in a negative way, but I like the positive as well. There are nicknames that might capture who you are. Uh, I grew up with a nickname. Uh, my buddies used to call me when we played ball. My coach used to call me uh, Ready Ronnie. That's what he called me. He said, man, every time we're ready to get something done, you're there. You're ready to get it done. Ready, Ronnie. So that was my nickname. That's what I got called. That wasn't a bad nickname. There were some other ones I can't repeat, so I'm not going to tell you what they are. And you might have a few of those attached to you before maybe you knew Jesus. And so we all have that. But, but, but the Jews understood. Uh, they understood that, that, that Jesus, uh, as, as they came to faith in Jesus Christ, that he was communicated to be the word. The Greeks believed in the word uh, or logos. Their understanding was the word is the origin of life. So when you say the word, that Jesus is the word, like, like, like John says here, what he's saying is he is the reason and the cause of the universe. He's everything behind everything you see that's alive and breathing. It's Jesus behind it. It's the word. That's amazing. It's powerful. Think about the word and how powerful the Bible states our words are. That we have the, the power to bring life or death with what? Our words. I, I believe this. I'm going to give you something to imagine here for a little bit. But I, I'm into this because I love it. And I've, uh, uh, I've noticed the, you know, the new telescope that's been sent to Netherlands. I mean, not the Netherlands here, but out there. I mean, it, it, it's been sent out into the universes, into the cosmos. And the things that it's seeing right now, one of the things that it's reporting back to us uh, with what they see is these universes that are continuing to be created. I thought, wow. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And if God's word is eternal, it do't surprise me that universes are being created as we speak today. I like to call that the creative spittle of God. God just says it, and then something happens. Life happens. Light happens. So when the word logos is being used by the Greek, it means just that, that, that there is a powerful word, a creation being made. There's something that's happening, the origin of life. And then you go to John chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, and I want you to see this with me. This is so good as you kind of dive into Like what John is saying, he's laying the foundation for all of us here so we can move on and discover the seven miracles of Christ and go into the different things that Jesus has for us. John gives us the last uh, two-thirds of the book of John, the Gospel of John, is that last 10 days of Jesus in his life. So he's focused on Jesus, talking about Jesus. That's what he wants you to know. And so in John chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, it says... <clears throat> He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the origin of life. This is fundamental truth of creation. And if you want to go further, it's the fundamental truth of creationism. And I think this brings us, it provokes us to talk about what is creation about? What do I believe in creation? Do you know how many studies have been done, secular studies, that say Darwinianism is evolution's a hoax? I thought that was interesting. Don't go read the Christian versions. Read some of the scientific studies given in the secular community. Here's one. It's the Worcester Institute concludes... That there is no way the complexity of life could just come about. There's no way. And they give this illustration. You know, how many have Apple watches or Apple phones? You have almost all of us have those. It'd be like crushing one of those. I mean, just crushing it and throwing it in the primeval ooze of what we're, evolution says we are made out of. And it stays there for, I don't know, you can... Do things with a billion years, I guess. And, and then after a billion years, it comes out and it's actually functioning uh, like it functioned before it was broken. What are the odds? What are the chances of that happening? These studies are saying there just isn't enough time, as much time as you want to attach to it. And I think that's one of the, um, one of the glitches of uh, many of the glitches of evolutionism. That's one of them. Because you, you're thinking, well, you just keep adding millions of years. Every time you come up with something, I'm thinking, wow, uh, that still isn't enough time. That's what these studies are telling us. That is mathematically impossible because there is not enough time for life to occur by chance. Amen. Uh, so please know that the passion and the purpose behind evolution isn't all about pro-science, as you're led to believe. It's much more about anti-God, anti-the word, the one who's given life. So let me say this again. The design behind evolution is very much purpose to lead you away from God, the word, more than it is to lead you to a scientific study. You just have to be aware of that because the, the science is really flawed, incredibly flawed when you look at it. So verse 5, it says, and the light shines and the darkness does not comprehend it. That's, that's actually one of my favorites in this. 
the, the light shines and the darkness does not comprehend it. You know what it means? It means the darkness can't capture it. The darkness can't suppress it. The darkness can't overcome it. The darkness can't get a foothold on the light. That's, that's what it's saying here. Literally means the darkness actively rejects the light. The darkness rejects light. It's kind of like that image if, if you were uh, in a, I mean, a, just a pitch black room. Lights turned off. There was no way for natural light to get in. You stayed in there for a couple hours. Your eyes adjust to that, that darkness, that dark space. What happens when you walk out and the sun hits you in the face? Ah, it's like it hurts my eyes. Well, that's what the darkness says about the light of Jesus Christ. It hurts my eyes. It hurts my eyes. It blinds me. Because I'm used to living in the darkness and then came a great light. And Jesus is that great light. He brings light to all who love him and believe in him. And then you go on to John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It says this, And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all my believe. He himself was not the light, speaking of John the Baptist. He came only as a witness to the light. So John here is referring to another John. He's referring to John the Baptist. And so what do you know about John the Baptist? Well, he was a cousin of Jesus through the mother's side. We know that. Uh, Elizabeth was John the Baptist's mom. Zachariah was his dad. There's a great story you can dive into if you want to read it in the Gospels about how this all came about and how John the Baptist was born. Uh, Jesus and John were born about the same time. But what we do know is he, he goes before Jesus and he prepares a way in the wilderness. Now, what I want you to think about right now is we, we, we realize when we think about John the Baptist, <laughs> we're thinking about this, and rightfully so, you're thinking about this wild guy. I mean, that's kind of the way the prophets functioned back then, kind of in the model of Elijah, you know, just, wow, just living life out there. But we're not only talking about a, a natural, a literal wilderness, we're talking about a spiritual blight, a spiritual wilderness. So what did John do, John the Baptist? He came to prepare a way in a spiritual wilderness for all who would hear and listen. And he starts to proclaim the Messiah's coming. The Messiah's coming. Prepare the way. The Messiah's coming. Such a powerful message that he had so many followers that when Jesus actually came, he says, eh, don't follow me anymore. Ho, ho, ho. Now, can you imagine turning that kind of power over? So rare. Man, I have this following, but I'm done. See you later. I resign. This is the one you should follow. And by the way, I don't even, I can't even, I'm not worthy to even touch his feet. So follow him. Don't follow me. Wow. The power of that kind of humility. So John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And John was a different fellow. He was. The way he dressed, camel's hair, you know the description. The way he ate, locusts and honey. Again, let me qualify the honey. It's probably a, uh, a fig honey, maybe more than bee honey. Just, that's just more plentiful there. And so, but it's honey, and that's what they call it. And then the way he lived, uh, he lived separate. The Bible says that he was set aside, most likely, and we're not told this directly, but he lived the Nazarite vow where he, told, he made a commitment. His, his parents committed him to serve God only and to follow God's will only. And so in a Nazarite vow, you don't put a blade to your hair. You let your hair grow. And so here you got to imagine this guy, okay? That's, 
That's what was happening. And as right now, no, no uh, uh, fruit, juice from the vine would touch his lips. All of those things are part of a Nazarite vow, and you would see that in the person of John the Baptist. So, yeah, he'd get your attention. Yeah, he'd get your attention. That's for sure, and he did in this case. And then you go a little further because what's said here in verses 8 through 14 are something that really stands out to us. It says, he himself was not the light, speaking of John the Baptist. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, and the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's a sad commentary. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Listen to this, full of grace and full of truth. I, I love the way that John writes. I just do. In the first epistle in John 1, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, that which was from the beginning. Again, there you have it, same author. Which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, we, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John had this interaction, this physical, real interaction with Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want any of us to forget it, and that's why he says, you know, I'm qualified through the Holy Spirit to tell you these things. This was the call of John. This declaration by John comes from spending time with Jesus, a personal witness I want you to look at something here. Twice the phrase, do you see that his own appears here two times? Uh, it says, to which his own, but his own did not receive him. There, there, there are two different phrases. You have to catch this, and I want you to catch this with me. The first, his own, is about coming into the things of his own, like, like the inanimate objects, the, the, the makeup of the universe, the dirt, the water, the ground. He came into the thing he created, the things that he created. He came to them. It's actually in a neutral form or a neuter form. But then he says, and his own, when he says his own did not receive him, it's a masculine form, meaning us, people. So what's he saying? He's comparing the two. He actually says that his own, the things that he created, obeyed him. Think about this. So he's comparing these. He came unto his own things, creation, and he came to his own people, they did not receive him, except, he says, for a few. Here's what we discover. The word who made the heavens and the earth becomes flesh and comes into his own creation. And then how does his own creation respond? How, do, how does his own creation respond? This is what we know. Water responded. He could walk on that. Storms responded. They stopped when he spoke. Death responded because when he said, let there be life, there was life when he raised up Lazarus from the dead and others that came along, that he breathed life into the things that he created, those things that we can touch and feel and see. They responded. They obeyed his authority. But then it goes to the other, his own people, said they were disobedient to his authority because we know where that disobedience got him, got him to the cross, didn't he? 
And so he says, to this, my own, there's a response, a, a submission. To this, there, there is not a submission. His own, his own, his own creation responded to him. The dead come back to life. Again, why the creator said so. He controls every physical force. It responded to his lordship. But when it comes to people who have a will, they did not receive him. It says some did. Jesus wanted his own to have a choice to live. He wanted you to have that choice. The inanimate object did not have that choice. The decision to love. He's, he's asking you, I'm coming out of love. I'm coming to you in love. That is, what, that is what has gotten me out of heaven here. And so I'm asking you, will you love me? It's your choice. You make it. That's what he's saying here. He gave his own life out of love. Jesus was undiminished deity in an unprotected humanity. Did you hear that? He was an unblemished deity, all God and all human when he was here in an unprotected humanity. Means that he came from an unprotected, a protected place in heaven to earth that was unprotected. That he was left wide open to pain, to sorrow, to temptation, all of those things. He was left open to that. What he experienced here was not protected. He had to experience that, and he did it perfectly. That's what we see in this passage. And then I'm going to finish with this, and I love it in First John chapter 15 through se- or 1, 15 through 17. It says, John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So what he's saying is we're receiving grace after grace after grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John says we have received the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Do you see how he describes this? I want you to picture something with me because he's a great word picture kind of guy. When he's saying that grace upon grace came, he's actually referring to what you might experience when you go to the ocean. That you go in the ocean and you 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 just stay and the waves just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. They're relentless. It may pause for a little bit, but it keeps coming and coming. That's the kind of grace that's been given us, given you to all who call in the name of the Lord. Grace upon grace upon grace comes to you that you stand in the waves of grace. And it is eternal. You cannot turn the waves off because you didn't start the wave. It's him. And so the word says here that grace is unending. Generation after generation, (laughs) you get your spiritual surfboard out and you take good long rides. Because grace keeps coming. Even when you might not see it, grace keeps coming. And I love, I love this because grace can, grace is so abundant that it, it can wear you out emotionally sometimes because you're just, you, grace is just being poured out. Have you ever experienced that? Where grace keeps coming and you can't believe it's coming? You, don't, you know you don't deserve it. You know you've done nothing to earn it. And grace keeps coming. And it's those moments in life you're thinking, Lord, I, I'm, 
I'm being worn out by your grace. And I can almost hear the Lord say, that's right. And it's going to keep coming. It's going to keep coming. It's kind of like that long day at the beach. I don't know. I camped at the beach when I was a kid. And we would surf and body surf and get out there. And there was nothing that left you more worn out physically than being in the ocean all day. Because the power of the ocean was constantly beating against you. You could go back and sleep for hours after you'd been in the ocean if you've ever experienced that before. What, what God is saying here is just imagine the grace of, of Jesus Christ just rolling over you. Rolling, and where you just have to lay down and say, oh, God, you keep coming. I can't, I can't get away from your grace. Your grace keeps coming. So I want to say this to you this morning in closing that you, you, you can run and try to hide from God's grace, but it'll keep coming. It's going to keep rolling over you. It's going to keep. It'll wear you out because that's how much he cares and loves you. That's the promise we have in the gospel writer John, influenced, inspired by the Holy Spirit. You are his beloved. Would you bow your head with me? Today and this morning, I just want to make sure I extend an invitation to those that may not know Jesus and you've never really experienced that, that those waves of grace. I mean, at least acknowledge that it was Jesus that brought those waves of grace in your life. But today you come to this place of acknowledgement and you know that you can't, uh, you can't gain salvation through your own intellect or through your own work. But you know that it's only when you call on Jesus that, that you experience everlasting life. I mean, you experience the forgiveness of sins. So today I want to offer those who are online, you that are in the building to call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you will be saved. You shall be saved. So today, it just takes a confession of my, my weakness, my brokenness, my sin. Say, Lord, I confess my sin to you, uh, and, I, and I trust in your grace. Listen, and, and sometimes when we do that, there have been very few people that we've trusted, but what we can know today is we can trust in Jesus. He's trustworthy, that his waves of grace will continue to to wash over you in Jesus' name. So if you are here and you desire that everlasting life, that forgiveness of sin, I'm going to ask that you make it real before you leave today and you go up front here and just have the folks up here that are going to pray for you. Pray for salvation in your life. I just want this to be so personal today. We, we've done this in other ways where we've invited uh, folks to come to faith, but today I want to do it this way. Just so there's a, a face to look at up front, someone to pray with. That's so, so critical. For you that are online, you can, uh, you can call us. You can write us. You can find a friend that you know has the faith in Jesus, and you can talk to them. Uh, anyone who knows Jesus and has been loved by Jesus will always be eager to tell you about Jesus, about his love. So, Father, today I thank you for the grace that you've poured out on us, grace upon grace. You are so faithful. We thank you for your salvation and all that you've done for all of us. Lord, you have made it possible for us to know you, to be loved by you, and that we would be called your beloved. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.